0: This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number R3 with guest Laura McCowan. All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash R3.
1: This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with
2: Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass.
0: And here's your host. The girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the special edition. I'm rolling out on recovery. I hope you have enjoyed the last few episodes Well, actually, it's only been a couple. The last couple of episodes, I should say, as much as I have enjoyed sending them out to you. This has been a labor of love, and I just am ecstatic to be able to talk about something that's so very important to me that I don't really talk about a whole lot on my regularly scheduled podcast. And just a couple of things about it. First, if you have any questions that you specifically would like me to ask the guests or that you would like me to address, simply shoot us an email at support at yourkickasslife.com and let us know. I am rolling out 10 of these total. This is the third one. And I will be doing another 10 in 2017, probably around the summer. So if I don't get to your question by the end of the series, please send it anyway because I will be rolling out a whole nother series where I would love to be able to specifically answer your questions. Also, these episodes are a little bit longer than my regular episodes. And the reason for that is that I wanted... My guests to be able to tell their stories because I wanted you to specifically hear the progression of alcoholism in these stories. I didn't want it to be just the ending of what happened and, you know, tell people like you only have five minutes to tell your story because we need to get on to other things. I wanted you to hear the whole thing because the progression is what's important. We don't just wake up one day at our own rock bottom and decide, okay, it's done. It's definitely a progression. If you don't want to miss any of these episodes, these particular episodes come out on Tuesdays, but if you don't want to miss them, especially if you don't want to miss the show notes, they can be delivered to your inbox. These particular episodes tend to have a lot of of resources. And the more I talk to the guests, the more resources I get, and I don't want you to miss them. So if you're not already on my email list, you can simply text the word kick ass, that's just all one word, to 444 999. That's the word kick ass to 444 999. And you'll also get, as a bonus, My free ebook and audio that's titled How the Shit Talking in Your Head Is Making You Crazy and Three Ways to Change It. And if for some reason you're already signed up but you're not getting my emails, especially if you have Gmail, check your promotions folder and they're probably hiding in there. Or I might go to your spam. Wah wah. So you might want to check over there. Let me now tell you a little bit about today's guest. Laura McCowan is a mama, a writer, a light seeker, and a recovery warrior. In 2016, she traded in her corporate executive job to teach yoga and write full-time and is a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, ExoJane, Jane, Scary Mommy, and Elephant Journal, among others. She's the co-host of Home Podcast, a show that explores the big questions of life through the lens of addiction recovery. Laura lives on the North Shore of Boston with her daughter and is writing her first book, a memoir. I'm so excited for you to meet Laura. She is just really, really amazing. And without further ado, here she is. Hello, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the recovery series of the Your Kick Ass Life podcast. And I am here with Laura McCowan, someone I have been fantasizing about being my friend. I already told her. <laughs> <laughs> and we're friends now. We are. I didn't have to demand it. Thank you for agreeing. <laughs> and yeah, this is the third installment of this podcast. The show notes are over at your life.com forward slash R3. I cannot wait for you to meet her. So let's jump right in, Laura, and let's yeah. start. Let's just, you know, dive right into the deep end. Like I was saying, that's what I like to do. Let's start with your story. So more specifically, what we're talking about on this series is we're interested in what was your relationship with alcohol before, and tell us when you realized it was time to quit and make a change, okay.
2: so my relationship with alcohol started young, young ish. I was a teenager, and it definitely wasn't one of those things for me. A lot of people tell stories about you know the first time they drink, the lights came on, and it was like they found the answer mm-hmm. to you know all of their insecurities and issues. And for me it wasn't really like that, but I did notice that it allowed me to be things that I wasn't pretty quickly. It allowed me to particularly like connect with the boys. It allowed me to not be anxious, it allowed me to kind of do whatever I want. I was a pretty good girl. I was kind of afraid of guys, but I wanted their attention so badly and It felt like a way in, right? It smoothed things out for me. And so I started drinking. I was raised in a family who who where drinking was really common. It wasn't that it was, you know, in hindsight, I can see that it was very overboard, but it wasn't outwardly like that. It was just around. It was like other families probably. (laughs) All the time. Yeah, it was just, it was there. It was just always there. And I, you know, I thought that's what people did. I thought that's what people did all the time, you know, as a matter of course, of just being together socially. Mm -hmm. So I never really thought much of it. When I do have, you know, one story that I always tell where I remember there being a shift. And I think it's important because it's what I sort of chased for the next 20 years. But when I was 17 I graduated from high school. I was I was younger on the younger side and I had my high school graduation party at my family's restaurant. We owned a restaurant and at that point, you know, it was it was okay for me to drink because I was graduating from high school and so we were all drinking openly and that was awesome. I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I can like pour myself drink and it was okay with everyone and you know, this was like in the middle of the day. I was really really then at that point i had developed a really bad eating disorder at the end of high school i was horribly insecure and i was scared i didn't know what was coming and i you know i knew the amount of calories in toothpaste i was exercising uh-huh. addictively and alcohol though was a thing that allowed me to both feel because anyone I'm assuming your audience is a lot of women and probably a lot of women that have had eating disorders. And I went numb. I mean, it made me numb. That was kind of the desired effect. I didn't know that, but that's what it was doing. And it, alcohol allowed me to feel and it also numbed me. It was like a way that I, and it also allowed me to eat. I wouldn't let myself eat otherwise, but if I was drinking, I could eat. So, you know, just to paint the picture of me standing there, at this bar in my family's restaurant, I had this little black tank top on, and I had this whole, you know, next chapter of my life out in front of me, going to college and leaving, and my family was in a bunch of turmoil. And I remember pouring my third really large Bacardi Limon in Diet Coke, because that's how I rolled then. And I remember feeling this wave of power come over me. I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling like if I, it was like a feeling of love.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I thought if I can stay like this, everything's going to be okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. To that.
2: So yeah. If I can hold identify. on to this. Everything's going to be fine. If I just stay this way, everything's going to be okay. So I chased that. I really did chase it. And it was hidden to me in a way I knew that I had this sort of lust and hunger for alcohol that it didn't seem like other people had all through college, all through my 20s. But I also surrounded myself with people who drank a lot. I went to a super big partying school. I was, you know, I started working in marketing and advertising. And so I was never unless you really, really knew me, I didn't stand out much, you know, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of signs along the way. There were a lot of I knew I had a lot of shame. I had a lot of anxiety and shame when I woke up in the morning after drinking, because I always blacked out, even if it was just, you know, moments or whatever, I blacked out. And I felt so much anxiety and shame around it. And I didn't feel like other people felt that way. But you know, I just kept piling it on, you just kept piling it on. And amidst all this, I was like creating a life like i i always been super social. I had, you know, I got jobs and I did well at them. And I developed a whole exterior persona through the course of my 20s that, you know, kind of hid the thing that was going on in the background. Even to me, it mm-hmm. hid it even to me. So I met my husband, the guy who would be my husband when I was about 27. And I remember my friends saying to me... <laughs> I was so relieved that Ryan is in your life now because we don't have to take care of you anymore. <laughs> and I thought like, we all laughed, you know, we laughed because it was true,
0: but it wasn't funny. You know, it
2: Did wasn't they mean, like
0: take care of you in general or take care of you, when, no, you when I'm drinking. Oh, okay. Okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was always that girl. I had to be, someone always had to take care of me mm-hmm. and it was a known thing. So I, my relationship with alcohol at that time, because I was like fell in love and I was distracted, and that became, I guess, the object of my mm-hmm. <laughs> energy. It tamped down, and there were lots of periods of time in my life like that. So, you know, to me, it just kept it further from my consciousness that this was a thing, that this was an issue. Well, too, and, I think in your twenties, like that's kind of what a lot of us did. You oh, know, it's for just, sure, it's just sort there of the was, culture. And I hung out with people who went after it. Right. I mean. I didn't, I love the fact that we went out on Tuesday nights until 2 a.m. And we mm-hmm. didn't think anything of it. And that's just what we did. I mean, I love the fact that we drank more after college than we did in college. I thought that was like the greatest thing ever. And I made friends who day drink. And that was the greatest thing ever. And every activity that we, you know, every revolved activity that goods. we created was mm-hmm. revolved heavily around drinking. And I loved it. I honestly, you know, I'm sure you've heard this progression before, but the short version of my story would be something like all fun. All mm-hmm. fun and some problems. Some fun and some problems. Some no problems fun. And some fun. <laughs> some problems and some fun, and then no fun. All problems. And <laughs> that's partly how, trying to have fun. Uh, yes, hey, wishing it was still fun. Convincing myself that it was still fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be the short version. But mm. so I met my husband, and you know that moved pretty quickly. And there are two things that were really important in sort of how this progressed. One was I pretty quickly realized after I got married that I didn't want to be married. And I had no idea what to do with that. And I drank at it. Mm -hmm. I drank to know it, drank to not know it. I drank to feel it. I drank to not feel it. And I, as you know, from being married, I mean, all your stuff comes up in relationships. You can't avoid it. I had no real coping skills or communication skills. So I drank, you know, I just, I drank at it. I didn't know how to deal with what I felt and the reality that I had created. So I just started to blow it up. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Just set it on fire.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Little, you know, little fire by little fire. And then sometimes very big fires and the drinking was central to that. You know, that's where I see if you like kind of track my drinking right after I got married, there was a big uptick in the problem area and then I got pregnant with our daughter and I was not happy about that. I was felt really trapped. I didn't want to even be married. And yet I loved this man. I mean, I still love him, but you know, so it was like an extra mind. F- mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got pregnant and I, you know, thought about all the reasons I, I didn't want to have this baby, but we had her. And when we had my daughter, that's when it really, the second time it really changed again. Because did I, you go back to work or did you stay home with her? I both. It would take a whole other podcast or two to talk about how insane the circumstances of our life was that time. It was 2010, just to put it in context. Oh, okay, yes, I remember. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of all you know. Like a lot of us need to say, neither of us had jobs. Yep. Yeah. I had just been let go of mine. He just graduated
0: from law school and got his MBA and couldn't find a job. For anyone listening that maybe isn't from the United States, 2010 was when we were just coming out of a very, very bad recession. Yes. And it was was real. I Mm -hmm. mean, it was real. It was something that you and I hadn't experienced
2: in our, not in our lifetime lifetime. And it was a big blow to us. So, so there was that there was all kinds of family stuff and I got horrible, horrible postpartum depression slash anxiety and i didn't know that though like i it's funny how and i'm sure you relate to this too even those of us who are like self-help people who are seekers we kind of know the concept of these things that people go through and we're attracted to uh, like understanding them but even though i had just like i had learned everything i could about postpartum depression anxiety i didn't even know i was in it when it was happening i knew i was in it when i couldn't eat anymore and I couldn't function on a day-to-day basis. And I was like cutting myself with safety pins
1: Mm -hmm.
2: just to Mm. figure out what was happening, you know, just to do something like I lost my mind. Mm -hmm. The drinking at that point, it's that's when it really stopped working for me. This thing that had always been like a release, it just made it so much worse. It made my anxiety so much worse, but yet I kept doing it. You know, I would, It was like pouring gasoline on my anxiety, but I didn't know what else to do. And I loved drinking. Mm -hmm. It was like, how do I let this thing go? So that was the sort of second turn. And then the third turn was when my husband and I separated, which was a few years later after a long bumpy road. And, you know, the wheels just really came off because no one was watching me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I was kind of the thing that I wanted. I wanted to do what I wanted and drink the way I wanted and and sleep with whoever I wanted. And, you know, I thought I wanted this and I did. I I wanted to not be married anymore, but I was so untethered and the drinking got really scary. So at that point it got to be, I really didn't know what was going to happen to me when I drank. I didn't know if, you know, I would have to think through what is the worst possible thing that could happen to you tonight if you start drinking. And are you willing to pay the price for Mm -hmm. that? Are you willing to pay the price for potentially sleeping with that person that you know is going to be out? Are you willing to pay the price with ending up in Somerville at a drug dealer's house because you know that drugs are going to be available? You know, that's the kind of sort of twisted thought process I would have. And a lot of times I was willing, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: if I even had the cognizance to make the choice. Most of the time I didn't. And a lot of the time I didn't. You know, it took me a while to get to the point of realizing that, I really just didn't have a choice anymore. Yeah, It could go any direction. I could have a drink and I maybe I would make it home and I would be fine. And I would, you know, definitely drink more at home, but no quote unquote damage done. But other times I didn't know, you know, I had a lot of jackpots. I got a DUI that was horrific.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I totaled my car, not shortly thereafter. I, my sort of turning point, which is the second part of your question, you know, when did I realize I had to stop is one instance that really slammed me against the wall was I took my daughter to my brother's wedding in Colorado and I left her in a hotel room the night of the wedding alone because I went back out in a blackout to the bar and I woke up in someone else's room mm. to texts from my family saying where are you? You know, your daughter is with us. She, by the grace of God, found my mother in a hotel of thousands of people, ended up finding my mother. And that was the that was the moment where I, I had to do something because now it was public. I mean, everybody, you know, my whole family was there and they yeah. knew and they weren't going to, you know, watch me take my daughter down. And mm-hmm. and I was so pissed. I was Horrified that I had
0: done that to my daughter, but I was so mad that I had been caught. Oh, really? Oh, my God. So you don't think you were ready? Like, had you up to that point thought, like, I wonder if I should think oh, about getting help? Hundreds of times. Okay. I haven't thought so
2: far as to say, I wonder if I should get help. No, because that would have been like a real admission. Uh-huh. I can trace back to, you know, that time when I was 17 of thinking this isn't right But I didn't think it was alcohol that was... I always thought it was something else. Okay, gotcha. But this was so in my face and so... uh, I don't even need to explain it. That was the first time, you know, someone said to me, you have to do something about this. Where I I couldn't squirm out of it. I mean, my ex-husband had said that to me many times and a couple other people had too. But,
0: like, the outsides were pretty good still.
3: (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: Andrea. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Andrea. Masterclass.com slash Andrea. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for anything you need to, therapy visits, rent, or even extra self-help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in noise under podcast. When you sign up it really helps the show noise under podcast subject to your available earnings location daily max and pay period max see earnan.com slash tos for details Earnin is a financial technology company not a bank bank products are issued by evolve bank and trust member fdic
2: there's a lot of evidence that i could point to to say it's fine you know this part's fine this part of my life's fine i'm going through a hard time and yeah I was stressed out mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going through divorce. I'm x, y z. so that was in July of two thousand and thirteen, and then I went to my first twelve step meeting shortly thereafter, and i didn't it didn't take. I didn't accept it. I didn't start to my my sober date. my last day one is september twenty eight two thousand and fourteen. so over a year later
3: mm-hmm.
2: is when I put it down for good. and in that time. You know, so much happened, so much happened. But I think the difference, you know, what really caused me to turn around or I think that the difference was I was so afraid of not changing at that point. Mm-hmm. I knew what was going to happen if I kept drinking, yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen if I didn't and and that's terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though it's you know, potentially a lot better. like it's still unknown. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was so afraid of not changing. I couldn't imagine getting to the end of my life. It just didn't compute for me to get to the end of my life and say, no, I, you know, I died of alcoholism or I died of drinking or I let my daughter be a motherless Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kid or any of those things. I just knew even though I was in so much pain and I was so broken, I knew I had a big, big light inside of me still. And in that time, I had started writing, which is what I had wanted to do my whole life. And I kind of wrote my way out of it. So I don't know what the magic thing was about September 28th. Honestly, I think it's a combination of, of all of many factors. But yeah, that was my last day.
0: Wow. So there's a few, so many, it was such a great story too. Thanks for sharing it. And you're just being so candid and honest. And I, there's a couple of things I wanted to say. And the first thing I want to point out for anyone listening is that I love that you told us, and obviously it was kind of the brief version, the 15 minute version of from when you were a teenager up until, you know, you were in your thirties. And, and I think that for anyone listening, who's still drinking and thinking about getting sober or who's in the beginning stages of recovery or not even who's been in recovery for a while is that you might keep hearing what we say is it's progressive Mm -hmm. and, you know, you didn't wake up one day getting shit faced and leaving your daughter in a hotel room. Like it was definitely something like that went downhill. I think too is, I don't know if it was like this for you, but my own progression scared the shit out of me. Like how fast it was happening. Oh, totally. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And for me, I had some like lucid moments of thinking if it's going this fast, and it's this bad, what's it going to be like in five years? What's it going to be like in 10 years? Because I kept telling myself, like, I would hear stories like yours, and I'd be like, well, I never had a DUI. Totally. I've never done that. I know. i never... I remember seeing Ellie Schoenberg, who's actually now a friend of mine. It, this was back when Oprah still had her regular daytime show. It was on women alcoholics, and, and they were profiling Ellie at home, and she was talking about how she used to hide bottles of Chardonnay in the dryer and in the laundry room, and I was like... <laughs> and you're like, well, that's That's up. an alcoholic, right? <laughs> Let's just... Yeah. (laughs) Or that show intervention, like holy hot mess. Like that was a way for me to keep drinking. That was a way for me to convince myself that that was not me. But the thing, I think the thing that scared me was knowing how fast I was moving down that train and that I was, I knew deep down as much as I didn't want to admit it, that I was going to end up that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good, or it's not good. It's just, I don't know that I had that. I had the sense of being on this train that was going faster and faster and faster and faster. But yes, it's so crazy how fast and how much it progresses mm-hmm. and how tricky that is to our minds, you know, because we can go back to not too long ago, you know, and think it was like this. It was, right. it looked like this, you know, oh, I want that back bag. There. And it was so heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking. And filled me with a lot of grief. And that's something I don't think we talk about a lot is to leave this life behind, mm-hmm. to leave this idea of alcohol and what a drinking life meant and all the connections it made for me and
0: all that, all the things I yoked to drinking to leave it behind. Right. Yeah. I remember thinking like, I could not imagine Andrea sober. Like, mm-hmm. and it scared me. I was like, who am I without drinking? Like I drink, right? That's what I drink. I do. Yes, I am the fun one. I mean, to an extent has right. been used to say like, you're one shot of Patron away from just a disaster. Like, <laughs> I, And we just never knew when it was going to happen. And it turned on a dime, but, and it always yeah. did turn, but I just, I am glad that you used that word grief because I think it is something that, that we don't talk about enough. And I think that For me, it was too, it was leaving behind my 20s and this life of, you know, not having responsibilities and just, it was a life of fun and go walking into a new chapter of marriage and being a grown up, and it was scary and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to be a mom and I didn't love being a stay at home mom. And I thought I should. And like all of this stuff happening and I just, I didn't know how to handle it. And I was like you, I didn't have any coping skills to deal with life. I didn't have any communication skills. I didn't know, you know, intimacy was whether it was with friends or with my partner was like one of those things. I always say like, it was that thing that I craved the most, but it was the thing I was the most afraid of.
2: Yeah. So I drank, (laughs) which is why you drink. Right. And it's, and then it just magically becomes accessible. I mean, it becomes easier just like that. I know you just made me think of something that just on the progression note towards the end, I would ride to work in my car that I loved that I ended up totaling. I would ride to work. The mornings were always awful. At that point I was a daily drinker, not drinking during the day, but I drink every night. I drink mm-hmm. wine. And the mornings were awful and filled with anxiety and adrenaline. And it was just like, how can I, you know, how do I get into this day? And so I had this routine, you know, I would just like go. <laughs> and I remember like being in my car, I'd be in this crazy traffic and putting on my mascara in the car Mm -hmm. and looking at my eyes and they were bloodshot and also started to get yellow. And just looking at my reflection, like my own eyes and thinking, this is what they're talking
0: about. Mm -hmm. This is what it looks like. It's happening to me. Mm -hmm. It's happening to me. Right yeah all of these it's interesting. I think like every person in recovery I've ever talked to has said that they had these like small moments of mm-hmm. Glenn and Doyle, Melton melt call column invitations, you know, to yeah. kind of stop the madness. <laughs> I'm a kind of a believer that we all have different pain tolerances, and some of us can't take that much. And I don't know, maybe I'm someone that can't take that much. Like I I got out, I think fairly quickly because I was, I was definitely on that road to hiding bottles and getting a DUI. And I think I just, I just escaped it because I just decided, and I know because I, I love the podcast you have with you and Holly, who's going to be on next week as well. We'll link oh, it in the show notes, everybody. It's the Home Podcast. If you're interested in this, then you would love their podcast. But it was a couple of months back. You shared a story about when you were drinking. That something happened with your daughter. Mm-hmm. It was like that you had gone to a parade or something. Can you share that story <laughs> with us? Because it was, it was
2: yeah, brilliant. that's the story. Where this isn't the parade story. I won't tell that one. But this is. I know which one you're talking oh, okay. about. <laughs> there was like vomit and boots involved. Uh, yeah, it was it was a shame episode. So there was lots of rough stories. But this is the one I know that you're talking about. And it's one that people have responded to the most. So towards the very end of my drinking, I was in my house. This is, you know, by the way, like once you start going, especially to recovery meetings, it kind of ruins your drinking. I mean, I knew there was no part of me that knew that that thought drinking was okay for me anymore. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't stop Stop. yet. Mm -hmm. I could stop for periods of time, but I couldn't stay stopped. And so every time I drank, it was really dark. Mm -hmm. And this was a night. I just, it was like a regular Wednesday night or something middle of the week. I had my daughter. I had put her to bed and I had bought, Wine. Sure, I had started drinking before she went to bed because I never waited, but started drinking, and I had drank like a bottle, and I went back out and got another one down the street, and I blacked out, and I woke up at like five in the morning with that rush of adrenaline and anxiety and panic that are so familiar to me, mm-hmm. and is the only thing I need to recall to. <laughs> To remind myself, you know, of the hell, by the way. But I woke up to that upshot of adrenaline, anxiety, and panic. And I walked out because I didn't remember like end of night scene, you know, like what was I doing? And I walked out into my hallway it was covered in vomit on my white walls. So like red vomit red on white my white wall. walls, all down and on the floor and I. It was all over my boots, winter boots. This was like in the middle of winter and I started cleaning it just frantically, you know, like scrubbing at these walls. This was a new house I had moved into. This is like where I wanted to be sober. Mm -hmm. It was another line I had drawn, you know, like I'll do it then I'll do it then I'll do it then I'll do it then I'll do it when I move. Well, so it was like extra heartbreaking and I was washing, you know, just taking all the spray cleaner and trying to get it off. And my daughter woke up and she was five at the time and just said, "Mama, mama, what happened? Like, what are you doing? And I panicked, you know, I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't know, honey, something happened. You know, something must've fell. And she, you know, grabbed a little cloth and got on her knees and started helping me clean. Oh my God. This little five-year-old and, you know, someone must have got in, mommy and, you know, it's just so strange. And I was just shattered. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that's the place where it took me, you know, that place. So that's what the end of it looked like. And, you know, that kind of stuff with my daughter is the worst. It's the worst. It's the hardest. It's the darkest. And it also fills me, you know, every time I talk about something like that, I just become profoundly grateful that it's not where I live anymore. Like that's not what's happening today.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, mm-hmm. it's not what's happening today. So yeah, that's the story. Yeah. Oh Gosh. I remember when, when you told that story on your podcast, I was like, Oh my God, it reminded me of, you know, my kids were little, when I got sober and I had two attempts at getting sober. My second one was apparently, hopefully the one that, that stuck. And, but Mm -hmm. so I got sober in May of 2011 and I had four or five decent months of recovery. I had a really tough sponsor in (laughs) AA and she was, she was very, (laughs) that's a blessing, right? Yeah. And I I think that like where it became difficult for me was that I felt like it was very black or white and I had to do it right or not at all according to her standards. And, you know, I can make excuses all day. Absolutely. Positively it was not her fault. And so I, I, you know, I could have spoken up and I didn't. And one day my husband and I got into an argument and, you know, and, and not having very good communication skills and, and a lot of abandonment issues mm-hmm. <laughs> when that happened, <laughs> it's a great combo, it's a great combination for a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> so with that combination, I panicked and he left and I'm the type of person, like I want to talk about everything right now when it happens, when it's mm. happening, he yes. needs time to process and then he will come back and speak with me. So he left and I panicked and I'm making up stories about how he's going to divorce me. And you know, I'm already planning my life as a single mom. <laughs> and I ended up thinking to myself, like, I didn't want to break my sobriety, you know, cause I was all proud of the time that I had. And I thought about like, Oh my God, if I drank then I'm going to go to, you know, yeah. go back and like tell my sponsor, just shame, shame on me. So, but I, I had this thought that I remember like all I wanted was a buzz. Like I just wanted to run away from this feeling, this anxiety of this crippling feeling of, you know, just my life was unraveling, right? Right. Panic. So I thought, well, if I drink some NyQuil, I'm not really drinking technically, (laughs) but I might be able to get like that sleepy, hazy feeling that I was looking for. So I mean, in like five seconds, I was in the bathroom chugging, um, cherry NyQuil. And I'm standing there in the living room and standing there and standing there, like waiting for it to kick in. And I'm like, this isn't good enough. So then I remember hearing an AA speaker talk about how she used to drink vanilla extract, which I had oh, never done stop. before, which I had noticed the true story. <laughs> swear to God, which I had never You're done right. before. You are right. This isn't like a yeah. it wasn't pretty. It wasn't like, you know, Oprah offered a me martini and like, cause that, those were like the relapse stories like I fantasized about. I'm like, if I ever yeah. relapse, it's right. because I'm at a cocktail party with Oprah.
2: One of my friends and I joke, if Adam Levine wanted to party and like, you know, do some drugs with me and drink, I
0: obviously would have to. I couldn't say no. Yeah. No, this isn't one of those. Like, you know. <laughs> okay. So we're races. at vanilla extract. So then I think about the vanilla extract and I go to the pantry. And there was some in there, and I took a swig of it, and it was disgusting. And I looked at the back of the bottle. So this was in 2011 when this happened, and it had expired in 2005. Oh my god! And it had like sediment all over the bottom of it. Like I didn't even shake it up, and I was like, at that moment, I was just so disappointed in myself. Like, like did I did I really think that that was okay? (laughs) Apparently, I did. So at that point, I just said it. And there was a bottle of wine in my house, which was probably a mistake. And so I opened it up and started drinking it. And then I think that my husband had come home, but I was, you know, like hiding that I was drinking. And then a couple of hours later, probably not even that long, I was sitting, my kids were jumping on the bed in their room and I was sitting right outside of the door on the ground. We had this like hallway cabinetry thing and the bottle was in the cabinet. Like at that point I didn't even put it in a glass. Like I yeah. just like yeah. drinking it straight. Like the what's bottle. the point? And so I'm sitting outside of their door. My husband must've been somewhere else and they're jumping on their bed and playing. And so my son was four at the time and I'm swigging back the bottle of Chardonnay or Pinot Grigio, one of the two. And he stops jumping and he looks over at me and he goes kind of with like a smile on his face. And he goes, mommy, what are you doing? And I looked <laughs> oh, at him. Funny. I'm sorry. It's and I was like, like I don't know. And that's all I could, but Good like. Question. No, it, it is funny, but it, like at the time I just I was like, what am I doing? What I'm, am I doing? I'm yeah. drinking wine, like I think it was like in the middle of the day too. It was like a Saturday or Sunday uh-huh. from the bottle with my children, because my husband and I got into an argument after drinking vanilla extract and NyQuil because I have anxiety. So yeah, it was just like those... And I I had like a flash in my head of my children are going to end up in therapy regardless. But like, (sighs) I don't want them to end up in therapy (laughs) because of this. At least I want to like Pull this out of the equation. So I know that element of shame as a mother, I think that like we still, there's such a stigma around just alcoholism in general. But I think for mothers, yeah. like it's, good moms don't drink too much. Like that's, that's, right. that's the standard we have to live up to. But, you know, we're still supposed to be social and have playdates and like, you know, and... It's an extra thick level of shame for mothers, which is is why I talk about it all the time. I know. And so do I. Do you ever, I mean, I know you're a couple of years in now, but do you still ever have that voice that comes in and tells you that you could moderate? Like you could just have one. No, no, Mm -hmm.
2: I'm lucky. I'm really, really lucky. Those aren't the voices, the fucked up voices that I get. (laughs) There's different ones, you know, like I, for me, it's more about other stuff, like other ways to escape or constantly Mm -hmm. wanting an escape from myself. Yeah. Whether it's food or men or technology or whatever. But I I have no illusion that I can moderate. It sounds like honestly, moderation sounds like complete hell to me. me I too. Nev-
0: I never wanted to moderate. Neither. That I was always drinking to get f- Mhm. The way I describe moderation is like I tell people, okay, so let's say you like ran a marathon this morning, 26 miles, and then came home and did yard work and you hadn't eaten all day. And I'm in the kitchen and I make you your favorite meal and you can smell it. And then I put the plate out in front of you and give you one bite. (laughs) And that's that's great. That's great. But I'm going to keep the rest of it over here so you can still see it and watch everybody else eat it. Right. Does that sound like fun at all?
2: No. (laughs) Or even possible. Like, how's that manageable? It's not, you're going to go eat
0: something. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. That's how I look at moderation. It doesn't sound fun. It sounds stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Stupid. is right. It sounds awful. I I never wanted to realize, and, and I hadn't expected to talk about this. So you've mentioned like men and sex and relationships a few times. Did you, because I was a full-fledged love addict. So do you feel like you had any of those tendencies with men? I didn't know
2: that I did. And I don't know, I, for some reason the like love addict or that like sex addiction, I don't maybe I just don't totally get it. I think it sort of overgeneralizes things, but I definitely definitely used attention from men and men as another drug Mm -hmm. as a way to get out of myself Mm -hmm. and it paired with the drinking, but it got worse in a way. In some ways it got worse when I stopped drinking because it plug up one thing and it's like the other, what else do you have? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and I have learned slowly and I'm still very much learning that, you know, that stuff is always there. The general discomfort of being a human being Mm (laughs) is there until you work on the root issues. And for me, a big root issue, sort of an original wound is rejection Mm -hmm. and all my experience of rejection. And so what I started to do, what I see that I have done my whole life really is seek that experience out so that I, in an attempt to try to heal it, to heal that original wound of rejection. And you know, and then I'd act all surprised. Oh my God, I can't believe you're rejecting me. I can't believe this is happening again. And for the first time, you know, I know for the first time I feel like I'm not doing that. And it's a total miracle. It's like just as much as a miracle as not drinking to me.
0: Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, for what it looked like for me and, you know, Pia Melody wrote facing codependency and she also wrote facing love addiction. And when I read that in 07, I'll have to look at those. Yeah. For me, it was a, such a slap in the face. Like I felt like she was writing about my life yeah. and if you've ever struggled with codependence, I mean, all love addicts are codependent, not all codependents are love addicts. So for me, what it looked like was I, like you were saying, like I looked to men and relationships and the chase and the attention as a drug. And yeah. My sense of self-worth and self-esteem and, and level of confidence depended on how much attention I was getting from men. And what's interesting is a couple years ago, it was on my 40th birthday, a bunch of my girlfriends got together and Courtney Webster was there. She was actually on last week and we were talking about comorbidity in, you know, mm-hmm. with alcoholism. You know, a lot of us were had eating disorders and, yeah. and other ways to try to escape our world. I can't even remember what we were saying, but she was saying something about, I'm totally misquoting how she asked the question, but the way I interpreted it was, like, if you could go back, which one would you pick? Like, oh. which poison would you pick? And I was like, immediately, I said men. Like, that, to me, was more potent than booze. You just would like pick to do them both. being able to do that again? Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, that, interesting. And Chase, and that that euphoria that I... But they were very different, like, you know, because yeah. because I don't feel like... I don't know. They were both, they're definitely their own poison. And they kind of like, I got different things from both of them. I think that's yeah. why I used them together. Yeah. So yeah. Oh was... yeah. A mixture of them together. I think
2: that's what gets women so much. I mean, men too, I'm sure, but I don't ever hear a story of a woman with alcohol or drug addiction that isn't right alongside a really unhealthy relationship with men and sex.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I know that raising a Differently Wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
1: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life?
2: identifying with it because for me the man thing didn't look like promiscuity for me or it was I was like a good good girl I didn't have Uh sex till I was 21 my husband was like the third person I slept with and I don't even say that was a sense of pride it was just like that just wasn't what I was doing Uh mine was sneakier I was like I want you to worship me Uh I want you to adore me I will not sleep with you And because I, you know, that would be actual intimacy or something. I don't know. It wasn't until I started drinking a lot that I got to just chase that. And then it was like, oh, my God, I have this power. Yes. I have this power Mm -hmm. in my sexuality that I Love and I want to use it mm-hmm. a lot. And drinking made it possible to use it without having a conscious about it, you know, being conscious about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I did a podcast episode a while back where I, I went into a little bit more detail. I, I can link to that in the yes, show notes, y'all. And where I talked what each of my addictions looked like. And, and mine wasn't necessarily promiscuity either. I mean, there were definitely times where. I said yes when I didn't want to. And for me, it was more like you were saying, it was that power. And it was for like more so than anything, it was the desperate need for connection. Yeah. I confused that, like the beginning of a relationship, like the flirting and the chase and just those like first few moments and, you know, weeks into a relationship, I confused that with love and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, I didn't know what real Trust looked like and intimacy, and so I thought that that was it. And I was furious if I got rejected, and you know, and it was just oh, it
1: was like so not even up. just
0: furious, like you wanted to die,
1: rage. I mean, yeah, I just
0: rage, and
2: yes, but I was mm-hmm. so quick to reject people, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, so yeah, it's it's a fascinating,
0: (laughs) it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Anybody who got too close, I was like, "Mm, no, that's no, (laughs) that's what I wanted. Like it was so God, it was, it was such a mess. Yeah. I recommend that book. I'll link to that in the show notes too, y'all. I mean, I think it's definitely one of those books where you take what you want and leave the rest. She talks about love avoidance as well and just the cycle. And she talks a lot about codependence as well. So it's a good one to have, but I'm also curious And I'm sure that people are too. So what do you do now to stay sober? Yeah. What don't I do to stay sober? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Truly,
2: my whole life is not in like an oppressive way. It's just all in service of me staying sober Mm -hmm. because it is the most important thing to me. Let me start here because I'm also really curious. Like, what did you do that didn't work? Oh, okay. Well, this is fun. I did thinking that I could do it my own way that I was such a special flower (laughs) and so much more intelligent slash
0: Mm -hmm. unique
2: slash. I mean, you name it. My head worked myself out of, sobriety Mm -hmm. time and time again. I, I never tried to moderate. That's one thing that I just don't get. The only way I tried to moderate was by doing drugs. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I never was like, Oh, I'll just drink, you know, on this day of the week, or I'll just drink this many that was held to me from the beginning. I never wanted to do that. So I never tried to do that. I tried AA, I tried 12 step meetings and I, and then I tried not doing that. And I am a person that has gotten a lot from like 12 steps. And it also wasn't enough for me. Uh I couldn't buy it wholesale and just do that. So those are the things that I did. I mean, there's probably more stuff. I tried everything. I mean, I, I tried to not know it. I tried to think myself out of it. I tried to put it off. I mean, that was one of the big things is I, I just always thought it would be better to do it later. I thought there would be a date when it would be easier Uh or more appealing or that it would stick. So I tried, you know, all those things. And the things that I do to stay sober are I do a lot, a lot, lot of physical exercise and work, like being an embodied person. Mm-hmm. One How of do you those, feel like that helps you. How? Mm-hmm. Well, so a few things. I and this is something I'm like deeply, deeply interested in, it has become a big part of my work. But one piece is I think just from a purely physiological standpoint, we know that exercise. It releases endorphins and dopamine and creates a lot of the same effects as what we're trying to achieve when we do drugs or alcohol. Oh. But it's like there's no hangover from that. You know, there's no side effect. So I have always been an athlete and I've always been someone who has liked exercising. I'm one of those lucky, annoying people. So I had that in my life and I knew that it, I felt good when I did it. So there, from a physiological standpoint, like stress relief and creating those like good chemicals in my brain. But there's also a bigger thing. And this is why I have practiced yoga, although I didn't know this is why I was doing it. And why I have really like deepened my practice over the past 10 years is I think Nikki Myers says this, and I think it's absolutely true that our issues live in our tissues. Mm -hmm. And all the trauma and trauma is one of those words that, you know, a lot of people think of trauma as like shock trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, getting abused or getting raped or getting, you know, um, PTSD. Mm -hmm. But trauma is really anything that exceeds your capacity to cope. This is Sean Korn, but it's perfect saying saying it leaves you feeling helpless, hopeless or out of control. So we experience stuff like that every day, right? And when we experience trauma, and we have a reaction in our body, and it gets stored in our tissue. And Our body remembers that. So all of the experiences of my life as a woman, as a, you know, as a mother, as a married person, as a, you know, all of the experiences we accumulate over the course of our life, all of the shame experiences for my drinking, all of the everything, everything. I do believe our body keeps the score. And I think unless we release that in some way, unless we discharge that energy, it stays in us. Mm -hmm. And for me, and I know, you know, this, but I feel like it's so useful to people that don't know it because it didn't really occur to me. It's like, why do I, why am I so attracted to this practice of yoga? Why do I feel better? Not just better, but why do I feel like closer to God for me? Mm -hmm. Why do I feel more connected to myself? Why do I feel like I just met myself again by doing this physical practice? I don't understand. And I think that's why, and I don't think it has to be yoga. It's the best thing I know of, but I think it has to be anything that gets you out of your head and into your body.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think so much of my recovery and the practices I do that support my recovery get me out of my head right. And you know I also do therapy, which is very much in the head type work. I think we have to address all of it though I, I stay connected to people in recovery I I mean so much of my work is in this world so I feel like I talk about it and kind of live and breathe it every day. but I you know I have sponsors, I also have lots of friends I Talk about this stuff all the time and not to the point like I would have thought, you know, the me of three years ago would have thought that I don't want to sit there and talk about being sober or being in recovery all the Mm -hmm. time. I don't Mm -hmm. want that to be my life. But that's not my life. It really isn't like I my life is big and beautiful and exciting and wonderful. And I'm free to do all these things just because I take care of that. Those are some of the things I do. I mean, really, it's kind of everything. I sleep. I take care of myself. I'm oh, I nice know. to myself. I Who mean, basic that, that things. worked <laughs> like sleeping. I right. sleep now. It's amazing. Mm-hmm try to eat good things. I also don't beat myself up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that one right there. I mean, we can have a whole podcast episode just on that. I talk about that a lot. I know practice. that's kind of one of your jams, which is so important. Yeah. It's, I mean, just the whole self-compassion is, and I don't use this term unless I really, really mean it, but self-compassion has changed my life.
1: It has.
2: Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And compassion can be one of those squishy words that we, you know, sounds like a Hallmark <laughs> greeting or something, but it's so not so, Pema showed her and this amazing talk on compassion. It's the most beautiful
0: thing. It is. I just, I know it is. I like that term. It's a squishy word. It, it really is. And I just, I mean, I grew up in a house. I mean, God love my mom. And my mom <sighs> is, she's a very strong woman and tough. And I grew up watching a legacy of women who would not take shit from anyone and just were strong women. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, now in hindsight, I realize there's a lot of pain and things that are really going on. But I think that I grew up in a house where vulnerability and compassion did not exist. They didn't exist. Like you get up, you brush yourself off and you soldier on. We don't have time to feel sorry for you. Right.
2: (laughs) Not at all. And there's like a value in some of
0: that. (laughs) There is a little bit. Yeah. But it's imbalanced for me. It bred perfectionism and Uh, it bred extremely high expectations on myself and of others. I have to watch out with my Mm. expectations of my husband (laughs) more. So poor guy, he's very patient with me and it can breed self-loathing and it breeds a lot of shame. For sure. And I just want to say something really quickly, too, about shame, like while we're on the topic. And, and yeah. I've said this a few times in my podcast, but it's worth repeating because people hear that word. I have found having many conversations with women about it is sometimes they dismiss it because they think that that's not me. Like, I don't walk around feeling shame.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that what is actually happening is that we are running from it. We know what it's like and we know what it feels like because we've had moments of it. We all have. It's part of the human experience, but we are building a life where we're trying to run from it. So if you've ever yes. participated in perfectionism, if you've ever participated in people pleasing or seeking approval, if you've ever participated in numbing, you are running from shame, girl. Mm. And I just wanted to point that, that out because there's, it's so there's good So good. So true. it's like,
2: kind of like I was saying with trauma, like mm-hmm. if you, everyone experiences trauma. Mm-hmm. It's not just for like the bottom experiences that we think of shame. I agree. Shame is like, we don't want it. No, you know, we, we don't, don't want know. to admit that we have shame or <laughs> that we're jealous or that any of the dark side stuff or any of the shadow stuff, but right. it is to the degree that we deny that in ourselves. We suffer.
0: Yeah. And I think that was where a lot of my drinking stemmed from too. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I didn't, I didn't want to let any of that in. Like I was embarrassed and ashamed that I had these darker sides and the way that that manifested was in gossip that was in backstabbing yeah. ending up feeling like shit because that wasn't authentically who I was but I didn't know how to be in a, it was like you know that self-preservation of only the strong survive you know? yeah sister only the strong
2: yeah I know I know I think that that's you know that is why you're doing this work I'm sure you always see the beauty in that you know
0: yeah, in hindsight, for sure. For in sure. hindsight, going through it, going <laughs> going through, through it, hell, and, and wiping
2: puke that. off your walls, <laughs> right. you know, sit there and go, I know this is going to be a beautiful experience someday that I will if I that will cause me, out. you know, to feel much gratitude later.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, and would you mind telling us one thing you're really proud of right now, and one thing that you're struggling with?
2: Yeah, I'm really proud that I'm coming up on two years sober. And I'm really, really proud that I have stayed willing Mm -hmm. to stay with myself. Like, I stayed with myself. I haven't abandoned me for a really long time. What I mean by that is, like, I've seen so much really rough stuff come up as a result of just being sober and awake. Mm -hmm. And I have been willing to, through the help of other people, like, I did not do this on my own and I never do to stay with myself like that. That just feels so good. That is not where I lived for so long. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to leave. And I did leave. And that's okay, too. But I I'm really proud that I stay with myself. And what that looks like is I'm a better mom. I'm a better friend. You know, I have a shot at being compassionate towards other people. I feel really good about that. I mean, I, it has sort of been everything like, it has Allowed the universe to unfold in a way that I could have never imagined.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For me, I quit my job and I started on this whole new path, and I think that all comes from staying with myself. And by myself, I mean the truest, truest part of myself. Like I mean, like the God part of myself. Yeah, and trusting that. So I would say that the the thing that I'm struggling with. I mean, I'm writing a memoir, so <gasps> you are. Yes. So glad to hear
0: that. You're such a beautiful writer.
2: Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I'm struggling with that. It's it's hard, man. I remember reading when Cheryl Strayed said in some interview, she took like three weeks off from her life basically to finish her first draft of Wild. She went away from her kids and she said, I went away to do this thing. And, you know, I did. I finished it, but it nearly killed me. Mm hmm. And I was like, you know, really? Like, how hard could it? How? Oh, my God, a memoir? Like, I get it, yes. I, I get it being hard, and I write about my own stuff all the time, but I really almost killed you. And I'm now understanding yeah. what that means. Like, parts of me are having to die.
0: <laughs> oh, my uh, gosh. I can't wait to hear the end, like, your synopsis of how it went emotionally.
2: Yeah, me too, because that will mean I have done it. Whatever mm-hmm. it ends up being, Yeah, <laughs> it, it will be something that's behind me. So that's what I'm struggling with. It's a beautiful struggle, but it is a big struggle. You know, I'm banking a lot on not the success of doing this, but on sort of this new life that I've created for myself. And so it's kind of all of our trust and all of our doubts and insecurities that we get wrapped up into all of our, I mean, I'm not the most disciplined person. I'm not any of that. And so it's all like, I get to see all my shit come through in this process. So
0: Wow. Yay. Oh, my dear. Thank you so much. Thank you. you all day Thanks for going on. longer. I can't have a short conversation. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've trained myself to have them having, you know, a hundred and something episodes. over. I know. Here, but I know. I'm just so glad. I'm just grateful for this conversation and getting to talk to you about something that matters so much and for you to tell your stories to help other people. And I'm just honored that you're willing to share it with my audience. And I will link up to where you are on the internets. I know that you do retreats and I will link up to the podcast that you have with Holly. And if yeah. you guys are dying to know right now, if you go to dot and follow her on Instagram, definitely. You're one of my favorite people to follow. on Oh, Instagram. thanks. Then- you too. Thank you all for being here. I'm just in a feeling very, very warm. and Me and too. And grateful. I wish we could hug, but we can't. I know! <laughs> oh, Sam, <laughs> One you know, day. We'll meet sooner rather than later in real life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. Thank you again so much for being here. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.
1: When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village Podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.